Welcome to season three of And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. Today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. From weekend warriors to Grammy winners, Banzoogle powers the website for tens of thousands of musicians around the world. So whether you're just starting out or looking for an affordable solution to build a new website and manage your direct-to-fan sales, you can use Banzoogle's simple tools to design a website and store that both you and your fans will love. Go to Banzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days. And be sure to use the promo code ATWI. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's writer, artist, actor is a Golden Globe-nominated iHeartRadio Music Video Awards International Artist of the Year winning multi-platinum number one singing winner of the Songwriter Hall of Fame's Hal David Starlight Award. While most kids were in second grade, he was on Broadway. While most kids were in high school, he was selling out arenas all over the world. From the great state of Texas, this quadruple threat has acted alongside the biggest names in Hollywood, sung in front of tens of thousands of fans, written hits with the biggest names in the music industry, and now runs a record label. But the most impressive part of today's guest is that he's as philanthropic as he is multi-talented. Not a bad start for someone who's only 25 years old. And the writer is... Someone I first met backstage at the House of Blues on Sunset for an Honor Society concert, Nick Jonas. <laughs> That's the single greatest intro I've ever heard. Well, Thank you for that. You, you can just start playing that whenever you yeah. walk in the house. I like it. I will, actually. Yeah. Um, it's good to see you. Good to see you, too. That is actually really interesting. So I was in a band, and then I was writing with... Jared Sharp, the guitarist from SNL, and he knew the guys from Honor Society, and we did Here Comes Trouble, and that was... Great the f- song. Thank you. And that was the first time I'd really written outside of being in a band. Yeah. And the, the big thing about it was that, one, 
Um, their manager uh, is your father. Yes. And yeah. they were opening for you. So we would get to go, we went to you know Staples Center and seeing all this, and this was just mind-blowing because I, I just didn't even know this world existed. And so to see like, you know, uh, what it is to write a song in a small space and then see it on a much bigger space is like... It's electrifying. It's, it's a crazy it's feeling. Electrifying. So, um, but how long was it after the House of Blues that they were in Staples, for instance, with us? It was about a year, right? Yeah, that might be right. Yeah, it's, it's just the timeline of that all is so crazy. And then I, I love that aspect of like the songwriting process as a whole. Is you, you, you write so many songs and some of those make it out of that small room and actually see the light of day and then some don't. Uh, but then some actually transcend into a room where other people are singing along. And I think it's the, the best payoff you can have as a, as a creator um, or one of the best, I should say. And um, It's nice that that's how we met. It is. Set the foundation for a great friendship, both creatively and you know, emotionally. Yeah, specifically emotionally. I mean, we, we cuddle like nobody. Um, Dude, we cuddle we're cuddling so right hard. now. They, people just can't see it. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's start from the beginning a little bit. So uh, you're on Broadway, but before you go to Broadway, you were born. Uh, I was born. Uh, that was a start. So you're in <laughs> Dallas. Yeah. So how do you end up in New York in seven years? So basically, my my dad was uh, in ministry. So he and my mom met in the registration line at Christ for the Nations, which is a Bible college in Texas. Um, and then they they got married right after they finished uh, college and uh, started tra- traveling, uh, playing music. And then my mom um, had a sign language team. So she was a, a sign language teacher and sign language ministry. And they would do this thing all across the country. And they stopped different places uh, for about two or three years. And then they went to New Jersey and had my oldest brother, Kevin. Then they went to, to Arizona and uh, lived there for a little while. My brother Joe was born there. And they went back to Texas to teach at the very school that they met at. Uh, my dad was the head of the music department at the school. And so music was always kind of around from the very minute I was born. Uh, and my earliest, actually, my earliest memory of music is being in this drum Sort of like it was a, a soundproof drum coffin. I don't know what you would call it, but like a cage, basically, uh, because you know the drummers apparently played very loud during the worship songs. I'm not really sure, uh, but I went in there and started banging around on the drums, and, and that's the first time I, mem- I remember making music of any kind. And um, lived there for f- three years, first three years of my life. Then moved to New Jersey. My, my dad became a pastor at a church there. Uh, again, playing in, in church for my whole childhood transitioned into, uh, I was at a hair salon with my mom. Uh, I was seven years old and someone heard me singing because I would just sing all the time. It's probably really fucking annoying, but I did it. <laughs> um, but she was getting her hair done and I was, I was singing and this woman next to my mom said, my son is doing a Broadway show in New York right now. Um, you should take your son to his manager if, if he is interested in performing. So I went to see the manager and I walked in and all I knew was pop songs, you know, like the the golden era of late 90s pop music uh, and like Celine Dion and Shania Twain. Um, and the manager said, we need some show tunes, so come back in six months when you've learned these songs. And it was like, sing, sing a song, sing out loud, sing out strong. And a bunch of other ones and songs from Oliver and other things and I came back and uh, she heard me sing and, and acting out and being really dramatic, seven-year-old. And uh, she sent me on auditions, and um, I did Broadway shows for you know five years after that. It's crazy. 
Craig, that's a long story. Sorry. No, no, that's good. Because um, this next segment is, what would Kevin Jonas Sr. ask Nick Jonas? And he said to me to ask you about when uh, you guys were driving in New York, uh, you would always say, let's write a song on the way. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, my dad and I are very close, and that's nice that, that he uh, asked that question. Um, but, you know... Shout out, Kevin. Shout out, Kevin Jonas Sr. Um you know, I think for both of us at that time in in our in our lives, you know, th- at this point I was like seven, eight years old, starting to fall in love with creating music. Um, my dad was also introducing me to a whole nother world, so he he always had a real appreciation for pop music, and he wasn't um, he wasn't kind of cynical about it. You know, he was he was really uh, a fan of of great pop music creators, and, um, and then he just educated me going back in time, starting with. Uh, you know, things like Carol King and the Jackson 5 and Stevie Wonder. So transitioning from sort of pop to soul, uh, singer-songwriter, and just giving me the, the, the full lay of the land. Um, and you had time, you were always, if you're working uh, in New York and you're living in New Jersey, you still have an hour-plus drive in yeah, and out but, of the city. So two hours combined travel yeah. every day just to become a music student and then in turn write songs and... I, 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 again, I got to give my, my, all my appreciation to him for being so patient because I'm sure that my ideas at eight or nine years old were not the best. Do you have any idea what your first song was? Actually, I do. And it's a funny story because I, I thought I wrote a Savage Garden song. I really was convinced that I wrote this song and was so angry. There's two memories I have from my childhood that, that are so out of character for me, but I think really character building in a sense. The first is I was in preschool. And I walked in and this kid was wearing an Oakland Raiders t-shirt, the black shirt with the you know, sort of silver and white. And I had the same t-shirt. And I didn't know at this time that you could, there was more than one t-shirt. <laughs> so I walked in and I pushed him. So you stole my t-shirt. <laughs> That's my, my, one of my first like confrontation memories. I got disciplined and it was all fine. Uh, the other thing was I Do you know his name? I don't, I can't remember. I remember he had blonde hair though and sort of like a bowl cut. Because out there, he's probably doing a podcast. Like, this is so crazy. But yeah. once I, I went to preschool, I was totally innocent. I was wearing this shirt. The guy pushed me. He said I stole his shirt. I wasn't. It's a good lesson to learn, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's more than one shirt. This is a weird day when, for everybody. When me and my brothers all wear the same size, you know. <laughs> Had to learn that one quick when he's stealing my shit again. Um, <laughs> no, so the other one was basically I'm listening to the radio with my dad, and the Savage Garden song comes on. I knew I loved you. That's them, right? Yeah. Okay. And I was convinced. It's like, they stole my song. He's like, Nick, I don't... I was like, no, I wrote this song. And I was furious. And also, maybe I did, right? Maybe I wrote a chorus that was similar. As we all know in the songwriting world, it's very possible to come up with a similar melody over similar chords. Um, So I'm convinced to this day that I deserve 15% of the song. Right. It's a it's a plausible scenario that we could get a hold of Savage Garden's There's no management. way for them to say, I just didn't so you, write it. Just so you could call them and just be like, this is so weird. But I'm pretty sure I wrote this when I was six. I love this. This Someone <laughs> said this to me one time, for real. Real songwritery thing. There's no way for me to prove that I wrote it. But there's also no way for you to prove that I, I didn't. didn't write it. Yeah. And I was like, well, you got me there. Right. <laughs> um... You're on Broadway for five years. Are people, those worlds, as I've learned recently, are not this, they're just n- not the same people. 
as yeah. the pop world, as a record world. I mean, some there are some labels that that obviously are based in New York, especially then. You know, where people, you know, maybe on weekends they're going to see shows, so they have, you know, some idea of who these people are. But it's been a long time since a Broadway actor ends up having a music career outside of Broadway. You know, that was the norm for a while, but it's super rare now. now. Um, What brings you into the room at at a major label when, you know, here's a kid who's on Broadway, but how do you get from there to getting... The record deal. Uh, okay, so I was in Beauty and the Beast at the time. It was my third show that I was doing. I did it for a year. Who were you in Beauty and the Beast? Played Chip the Teacup. Ah. Yep. So they basically, there's this big secret, and I'm still sworn to secrecy, but the way it worked in the show, is a, it was a drink cart, you know, like a tea cart. Yeah. But, but you would see the head of the kid playing Chip, but right. you would not see the body. Right. So they had, I think it was... Copperfield or David Blanders come and do all the the magic in the show and people were blown away by this trick but the little hint again I'm not allowed to even say today is that you're kind of crammed into this small space and so after about a year I I outgrew the role but Chip the Teacup was one of my shining moments Um, and also on dates like when when I've said that played Chip the Teacup there's like this uh, every time it's like a it's like a winning moment yeah, at least, anyway. I mean, it's like the most lovable character. It's the most lovable character yeah. in the world. Is there um, a song out of Beauty and the Beast that you don't know? A song out of Beauty and the Beast like, that I don't know? Like, basically, my assumption is that as soon as someone's like, you know, bonjour, oh. you're like, fuck, I got to sing through the next two hours straight. Dude, that's the problem of being a theater kid as a whole, is that when you meet <laughs> another one yeah. and you know the same shows, you just <laughs> sing them for hours and then like... Yeah. Because it was a job that I did, even as a kid, for a year, it's kind of ingrained in my memory. But no, there's not one that I don't know from that one. And when there was the extra songs in the movie, like the one that just came out, I was a little put off because I knew it so well. And then I felt like they had thrown me a curveball I wasn't expecting, and I felt personally offended. Um, not <laughs> really. You, right, exactly. But um, Before we go back to the, the story that you I yeah. asked, <laughs> but, um, do you think, is, is the goal to end up back there in, on, on Broadway? On Broadway? Yes, uh, I just I just finished the first draft of a play that I wrote, and we just did the first reading in New York. Cool. Um, I don't know. You know, it's a really it's a really tough thing to break ground on a new play. You know, it's sort of especially on Broadway, it's a really big challenge. I think in a in a perfect world, I'd I'd see this thing on stage in the next twelve months somewhere, whether it's uh, one of the nonprofits in New York, you know, New York Theater Club, something like that. Yeah. Or if we do it out of town and see what happens. Um, but I'm really excited about the idea of just creating both, you know, uh, as a musician, but also as an actor. And then now as a writer in this other space, it's been really fun. Um, so yes, I hope to go back and maybe this will be the vehicle or something else. Cool. But to answer your question before, yeah. I was doing Beauty and the Beast. Every year during Christmas time, they put together this CD, well, CD then, but they put together this uh, record called um, Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS. And... Um, it's covers of Christmas songs uh, as a relief effort. And I said to my dad, I said, what if you know, we write a song for it? He said, I don't think they're going to allow an original song. So let's just try. So we sat down um, on a Monday, which is the day off that Broadway goes dark, and we wrote this song called Joy to the World, A Christmas Prayer. Um, and then we we brought it to the people, the producers of Beating the Beast, and 
they went and pitched it to Broadway Cares Equity Fight Says. I said, we'd love to have this original song on the recording. So first time in a studio, went in, recorded the song, some of my castmates singing the choir parts. And wow. It's a really nice song. How old um, were you at the time? I was nine. Yeah. And then uh, basically this guy started coming to the church and asking my dad a lot of questions. Part of ministry goes beyond basically the time that you're there preaching or performing weddings, you know, like or funerals, whatever. It's, it's ministering to people on a very human, personal level. So he would build these great friendships and relationships with people. And one of the guys that he built this relationship with said he worked at Sony Music Group, which could have meant he was the head of the label or that he, you know, was a janitor. Like, we don't really know. Uh, we didn't know until he said, um, you know, I, I heard the song that your son did. And I, I would love to play it for one of the A&R guys at the company. My dad tried to have a career in music and uh, country music as a younger man um, and has some great stories from that time. So he was very familiar with the lingo and like the world and how it all worked. And so he was like, sure, but, you know, who knows? So, so that guy turned out to be Bob Bolin, who at the time was uh, head of business affairs for international for every Sony Music Group label, Epic, Columbia, at the peak of that era, you know, 2000 to 2004. He played it for David Massey, of all people, at Daylight Records, the imprint on Columbia Records. And David Massey is, uh, to this day, one of my closest friends, kind of, in some ways, a bit of a, uh, a mentor and a guiding light for me. Um, and our story, like, we, you know, we, we were not always working together, but the fact that now I'm back at, at uh, his label, you know, Island, and we have our imprint together is kind of a crazy, awesome. small world, like, full circle thing. So that's how I got signed. So at nine years old, Dave Massey is your A&R guy? So, yeah, basically it took so about a year. he's been your A&R guy for, you know, all said and done, years. he's going to end up being, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so I I remember the meeting so well. I went to the the big building, five fifty Madison Avenue. Um, like it's just so funny. Like even now, you know, this is well fifteen years ago, basically. But so much has changed. And for anyone that's like just entering the music business now, or or kind of like in the last seven years has broken through, like you you really would not have even seen this era. I saw like the very last couple of years of it. You know, um, Donnie Einer and the the thing you know and it was a crazy time so I go up this building it's the top floor and he's got this office in the corner office and it's me my dad Bob Bolin David Massey um and David just says can you can you sing something I've heard the song it's great but I want to see if you can sing for me now you know basically testing if I could sing live and so I started singing signed sealed delivered Stevie Wonder and then uh he was like, wow, this is great. You want to see something cool? And he brought me to this hallway where they just had like these giant drawers filled with CDs. Oh my God, those were the best. The best. And you could just walk in yeah. and just grab whatever you wanted. So I left with like Oasis, CD, like the, you know, all the shit. And um, it was such a crazy just time. Goodie bags of goodie bags. CDs. If that's all you got out of meetings from CDs, like, or meetings with yeah. uh, label people, it's just it's like it. It, was, it was always worth it. Yes, it was. So um, then you get a deal, and then they're like, "Let's make an album." Yeah, so they so it was a, a joint venture between Daylight Columbia and INO Records, which was 
the home of Mercy Me, the Christian music group that I'm a big fan of. But um, Jeff Mosley was was the guy uh, that had a label there, and they had a joint venture to do a Christian crossover pop record for an 11-year-old. So it's just like a big old challenge. But we recorded the song called Dear God, which actually was released to adult contemporary and Christian radio and kind of had like a little bit of a moment. Um, but I think, you know, trying to make a full album on an 11-year-old kid is really tough because, you know, it's sort of like, what is it? What is the, what's the market? He's not quite old enough to be uh, a teen heartthrob. He's not quite young enough to get away with like singing things that are are or he's too young to get away with saying things that are too mature um so it was just a big challenge and your literal voice is changing on a monthly basis at that yeah. age it's it's really complicated to do that really tough but when you, when you write with young people too it's like you have to remember it's like these people have no past yeah so you can't write about the love you had you can't talk about anything you had because you had nothing. See, my, you, my uh, issue though was you know? that that's what really pissed me off is is like we had the song called Crazy Kind of Crush, which was basically um, it was kind of like the new school answer to uh, uh, like a Jackson 5 thing. Because I got this awesome, amazing, crazy kind of crush on you. I'm, I'm 10, right? Yeah. And I was like so annoyed I'd be in the car with my dad, so infuriated. Like, it's not fair. I could sing about more than this. I just come from Broadway where like yeah. Les Mis is like, you yeah. know, look down, like really yeah. sad and emotional. And they're, they're saying that I need to sing about like having a crush. Yeah. Like, this is beneath me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we go yeah. through some Les Mis songs right, real quick? We should, dude. <laughs> I don't know if we have to license them though if we do that. <laughs> um, but I, I wrote, I had writing sessions for like a year and a half, did an album photo shoot, all this stuff. Got t- together a pretty good group of songs and and some really heavy ones like you know in my effort to like be mature at this young age I wrote songs like uh, this one that was called um, appreciate opening line of the song there's a man dying on the side of the road won't make it home tonight it's about like this guy right he's like won't make it home but he calls his daughter right before he goes and says take the time to appreciate like heavy. For some reason, that's where my head was at 11 years old. But we write these songs, and then one day my brothers come in, my fucking brothers come in, they go, have you heard the Switchfoot album? I was like, no. Like, there's a song called 24. Everyone sit down. Just like that. It was like the scene from a Will Ferrell movie. Where like, here I am, working my ass off, trying to make this album. My brothers come in, you ever heard the Switchfoot album? And they sit the whole family down and play us a song called 24, which to this day, like, just hits me so emotional in a, in a really emotional way because it was the moment that they stood up and were like, we're also musicians, which I was just not really aware of. I know they liked music. Uh, Joe had done a Broadway show as well, but claimed that he wanted to be more of an actor. And they started playing and it was like, oh my God. Well, so they literally played it. They weren't like playing my, the CD. No, they, my brother they Kevin sat there played with the guitar, which he played in the church yeah. band. But like he like applied himself and like played it and Joe sang. And I was like, oh my God, this is happening. This is going to happen. And again, I'm a kid, right? So like the, the balance is like, it, 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 if I was in my dad's position as, as an adult, I don't know if I could have handled it as good as he did. Uh, it was really incredible because it was such a, a tough moment. Basically... I wrote a song with my brothers the next day. I was like, you, this, you guys are great. Like, let's write a song. We write this song called Please Be Mine. 
my dad calls David Massey and says, the boys wrote a song together that you should hear. We go into the office the next day, play it for David and David Gray, who's my publisher still to this day. And they both kind of sit there and David described it to me as saying basically to himself in his head, like, I got it. Like it was like an aha moment, you know. And then they wanted to sign all three of us. So my dad takes me to lunch as like a uh, 12-year-old, 11, 12-year-old kid to tell me that like this thing that was so exciting for me, this like amazing opportunity was now going to be all of us. And like just me wrapping my head around that, I was like really disappointed for whatever reason. I think I just felt like, oh, my dream was was no longer mine and I've got to include others. And then I like came to in the conversation because he said like, you'll get to do this with the people that love you most and you'll get to travel the world with people that love you and care about you and you guys are great together. And it was like, oh yeah, of course I want that, you know. Um, and then we made a record together and it didn't do well. Uh, and then we got dropped by our label. But not David Massey. We got sort of taken by another executive, made his project, he championed it and it was not authentic to who we were. It was sort of like a punk rock boy band. Were you still writing all the songs? Writing a lot of the songs. We, we wrote about 50% of the album, but he had some that, that from you know, some outside writers that specialized in the, the pop punk thing. Uh, that, it, again, it was it's a great lesson to learn at that age of like, do what you do. And right. Right, no matter what, like stick to what you feel is authentic to you. And I mean, I'm, I'm like straight. This is also the challenging thing was that I was just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes the church that my dad was pastoring, the whole thing fell apart and was really hurtful to the whole family and became years of like healing from that experience in the church. Um, this, the thing that the place that was supposed to be safest, the sanctuary became really hard for all of us. And um, so all these things kind of happened. We got dropped by our label. Um, we are staying in a, a small two bedroom home with the four boys, my parents and our uncle who was living with us. Uh, paying wow. like 700 bucks in rent a month f- as like a favor f- from someone that went to the church that was loyal to the family. It sounded like Game of Thrones, loyal to the family. <laughs> but who was, who was, you know. And we had, the, so my parents dug into their pockets and for my birthday they got me a V-drum kit, drum kit. And they put it in the basement of this house and the thing that was cool is you could plug your aux plug the aux cord in and play along to your favorite music and learn how to play the drums well. So I play the drums every day for four hours and I would grab a guitar and play for two or three hours and I go sit at our piano, which is the one in this house here, and write songs on the piano. And I wrote four of the songs in that, on that piano and another four with the brothers and the guitar in that house that would become the record that broke us open on Hollywood Records that sold uh, like eight million, million around the world. Yeah, and, yeah, it's incredible. Okay, here's the deal. I am technologically challenged. I've always been technologically challenged. I barely know how to use this computer to record this thing that I'm recording right now. So I can guarantee you that I cannot build a website. And when I was in a band, I just needed something to help me build my band's website. 
Well, you are in luck because today's podcast is brought to you by Banzoogle. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website for your music in minutes. Choose from over 100 mobile-friendly themes. Then customize your design and content in a few clicks with Banzoogle's easy visual editor. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including tools to sell your music and merch commission-free right on your website, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations to pull in content from all your online services like Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud, and live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Banzoogle plans start at just $8.29 a month and include your own free custom domain name. Go to banzoogle.com to try it for free for 30 days. And be sure to use the promo code ATWI. That's ATWI to get 15% off the first year of your subscription. Banzoogle, websites built for musicians by musicians. Did you learn things like math or like science growing up, or is this like no, no? I, I some, never went to like, It sounds like you like you lived in like the greatest childhood of all time. You're like, yeah, I, I went to school. <laughs> even like, even though obviously there were those struggles, it sounds yeah. it sounds like where it's like okay, instead of doing anything that all the other kids do, we're just gonna let you know, just go yeah, and figure music. this out. Yeah, well, actually, I failed music in school though. I got an really? F in music in school. <laughs> My teacher was just like annoyed with We got to get that report card and I know, it should be framed. Yeah. No, I really did. In second grade, I had a music class and I stood up in defiance and said, this doesn't make any sense. I swear to God, this is a true story. I stood up and said, this makes no sense. She was like, what doesn't, Nicholas? And I was like, music is not math. Music is not math. She's like, I don't know what you mean. And in my head, I always saw music as like a series of good decisions. I was like, like shopping for something, like pulling stuff off the shelves and being like, this will mix well together. And then we go and make it and we see what we have afterwards. And you don't lose if it's not great, right? Like it's just a good swing. But I was so frustrated that there was like math to music. It's like, do, you, do you feel that way now? That yeah. there's still no math? Because I, do you... I still don't know how to do math. Yeah. First of all, I'm terrible at, at anything besides. But when you simple, write, you write from a place of still picking off the shelves. You don't write from a place of like, oh, this mathematically is the right place to go. Well, I think it's a balance now. I yeah. mean, I think because uh, here, here's what I think I've learned. The biggest lesson is that the worst thing that can happen in your life and career is to have a hit, <laughs> because you then base everything you're doing off of that. And probably not what made it great, but what made it successful, which I think is right. is really dangerous. Um, and as yeah. an artist, you tend to drop into how do I take the business approach and not feel guilty about it when crafting this song? What will my fans like? What will work at radio? All these different things. When the times where it has really worked for me, at least, and a lot of people I've talked to, is when they go, fuck it. I'm going to do what I want to do and what feels natural to me. And if the pre-chorus is three bars instead of four... Like maybe it's supposed to be, and that just feels right. I'm gonna go with that. Um, but you've always been good about, you know. Obviously, you have the capability of taking songs from nothing to a song. You know, like you are in a basement writing on piano and on a V drum kit, and you write a song from nothing, and those things sell 
you know, however many millions in the U.S., however many mi- millions worldwide. So you know you can do that. And then, but you've always been one of the artists that everyone enjoys writing with because you're willing to take starts from other places. You're willing to like work with. I mean, the whole point of the co-writing thing is that you you can still be yourself and try not to think of the business part as much. Yeah, and then let the people around you who that's their job in a way is to try to pull you into that world a little bit and let you totally. still be yourself. I had a really interesting yeah. year, like in 2010, I, you know, the brothers and I had just sort of taken this hiatus. I made this side project record that was a, like a blue eyed soul thing called Nick Jones, the administration. Yeah. With John um, Fields, John Fields. Oh yeah. Uh, it was a really fun record to make, but Joe was doing a solo project. And so I sort of, I was a bit delusional in the sense that we were really lucky because, you know, we were working with Disney, but when it came to our music, they really let us take the creative control along with John Fields, who was our producer. And he and I would spend all of our time together crafting what those records were, and it wasn't like a formula on Disney's part. It was just literally the songs we were writing and we would make them. So I thought it was just going to be that way everywhere else. So my publisher and management team was like, you should like write for other people. Like Ryan Tedder does it and he does it really well. And he's obviously brilliant, but I was like still learning. And so I like, <laughs> I booked out Henson, the A room, and like set up a full like writing situation. That's the room, by the way, for listeners where they did We Are the World. Yeah, it's so huge it's, and it's not like this small, this small, like, oh, I, this small studio. It's like the studio. It's the studio. <laughs> and you, you don't lock that studio out for like 30 days. Like, right. it's just not a smart economic decision right so especially when there's there's no one paying you to be writing these songs right so it's just like yeah i'll just like book this out and like write a bunch of the hit songs yeah that's what i thought was going to happen and i didn't i didn't get one cut but i had different co-writes every single day and that was where i learned how to co-write with people that were not my brothers um or people in the band you know yeah uh so i first day was brian kennedy Wow. And uh, Dwayne Whitmore, who is Dwayne's one of my still favorite people to collaborate with, and we've written a bunch of songs for my records, and he's a great friend of mine. Uh, and then the next day was like Lady V, and we had, it was like uh, every single day was somebody somebody new. And then I got to work with Glenn Ballard, which was amazing. In that thirty days, we wrote this beautiful song called Daylight, still one of my dad's favorite songs I've ever written. But they never saw the light of day, and so I left thinking like okay, cool, I just like banged out 30 days of writing songs and I'm going to like see this turn around in nine months and be on the radio and it just didn't happen. And I think... Why didn't you release them yourself? Any of it, like, did any of them make sense for yourself? No, not really. But I think the other thing was like, I don't think they were good enough, you know? Yeah. So I'm not sure if... Uh, yeah, if, like when if, it comes yeah. down to it, like maybe the songs weren't... They weren't great. Yeah. But it was awesome to learn how to co-write and... To be in a spot where I was just able to start being creative with like a forward thinking mind outside of just my little bubble. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Um, going back to your little bubble, I remember saying to right around the Honor Society days and stuff, this is when I learned about the Jonas Brothers because at that time, like, there aren't a lot of guys in their late 20s that are listening to... Jonas the Brothers. Jonas Brothers, yeah. And so I didn't really have any like I had no gauge on what this what this was until seeing what your audience would show up for the opening act because they showed up with their parents and they were engaged from the first song of the opening act. And my experience was always being an opening act was that no one wanted to see you and they were yeah. they couldn't wait for you to leave. Your fans were like loved whoever opened for you with like the same passion that they could love everything that they could love it was all about like yeah this crazy thing and i remember saying to my bandmate who sucks but as a human but he um i remember saying to him i was like you have to understand that these kids are the future like you were writing songs that a whole arena could sing every word to at 14. I was like, this is some LeBron shit. You don't understand. <laughs> Nobody else was doing that. I remember using that example because it was, you know, it was like he was the prodigy who never, you know, the the last of the guys who didn't have to go to college and yeah. just were able to play pro. And you were playing these pro arenas and all the instruments and doing all this writing as a primary writer, even some with your brothers, some on your own, but you were doing it so young and so professionally it was, like you had no idea I, there's no way you had like a real gauge on how unusual that is right or or yeah i mean i, f- I feel very to this day i feel very lucky just I, looking I, back at that yeah. you have to be like that's another human you know yeah i mean i i wish here's what i look back and I think like i wish some of those instincts that were within me then we're still as real now in the sense that I've, I've almost learned too much where I have to work backwards. Like at 14, 15, you're just writing instinct. It's like, my heart's broken. I'm going to write the heartbreak song, but I'm going to write the best fucking version of that that I can. And then, you know, that's what you have. But it's sort of more raw than crafting the the internal rhyme or like the the great concept. Like how do we, how do we like songwriter this out a little bit? Right. Whereas at 14, I'm literally like, just raw emotion or excitement about something. It's like there's no filter of you can't yet. You can't do Did that. Did you have your heart broken? Yeah. By who? Uh, by Miley. Yeah. I mean, it was like high school, dude. Like all of us were, it was just, it's the whole thing. Like that graduating class of Miley, Selena, Demi, myself, Joe, Kevin. Like it was that group. That's crazy. Yeah. Do you guys all keep in touch now? I mean, obviously, Demi. Uh, Demi, yeah, we keep in touch. Um, uh, the uh, Miley and Selena, not so much. I mean, 
we see each other and it's it's fine, but um, we don't stay as in touch as we used to. Certainly. What is it about those generations of, you know, the, the Disney artists that, like, what is it that they that you learn in that process that makes everyone so successful, or is it that they find people really young that are really talented? I think uh, it's tough to say exactly what it is. I think that they've got a really good eye for for who will work for their platform. Yeah. Um, and then the reality is, say what you want about Disney, and a lot of people, I think, after they're done working with Disney, feel uh, that they want to speak poorly about the process. And I've gone through my own, you know, waves in, in processing what that was like. I think that there is an immense amount of pressure put on children at a young age, and that's not healthy. Um, but I don't think that that's one corporation's fault. I think yeah. that that's like the world's fault in a sense. Um, and then yeah, also... And they, I, we've been watching a little bit of... Um, sorry to interrupt, but we were, we were watching... We were with Mio, who is the head of a r for Hollywood yeah. right now. And I, one of the best things that he says is like, he was just really concerned and making sure that his artist that we had in the room was really well taken care of and that they... Like they're they're they've gotten really protective of making sure that that their younger artists have, you know, parenting yeah. when their parents aren't there. Well, I think that do you know what I mean? You know, you as a kid performing is it's your dream. You never really when you get to that level, you're not pushed to do it because it it you almost have to be driven from within to want to work that hard like it has to be you it's not apparent i i don't think personally and all the my friends that were in it were not pushed by others they were really driven um but i think what makes it challenging is is the expectation uh that because you work so hard you do so much that you have to be an adult when you're still learning really valuable life lessons at such a young age um and so that that pressure was there but thankfully you know I had my my parents and and Phil McIntyre, my manager from day one, uh, as as really you know sort of the the real foundation and and um, and understanding that it's okay to to like not be okay when yeah. you're that young and to learn and and to work through it. You know, when you did the administration album, I remember that going around and being like, "This is like this is such an adult record." I mean that, like, not that the the stuff before wasn't adult, but even the the players around you were adults. So there was like a different kind of like, I don't want to say like sophistication, but it felt like it was like it was coming from a different place. Were you saving those songs? Did you want that to sound the way it did? And how did you feel about like the response to that album having just come off of you know this crazy sort of Jonas Brothers run? Um. I, I loved making the record. I feel like part of it was just needing the process of like, you know, setting up Isoboost and the whole band recording at the same time, little to no overdubs, songs that were like unapologetically bluesy and kind yeah. of left to center. Um, I I think that the reception to it was was good. I mean, I I don't know, I kind of, have lived and balanced disappointment and respect from my peers like my entire career, and it's still something. That Are I, those the opposites? Like what that? do you what do you mean by that? I mean like, I think I have an unrealistic expectation at times, or did then, especially um, 
of people's view of my work or like their, their, um, or that even like accolades matter. You know, I think that one of the things that was tough and the way I was talking about song, like hit songs being almost a bad thing in some ways, like we were nominated as the brothers for best new artists in the year that Adele won. And that kind of messed with my head a little bit because I started to play towards critical acclaim and like thinking that was important. Um, I think it's sort of naive to think that we would have actually won that at all, ever, you know. Why? Because uh, Adele. Because right. Adele. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, no, but also just I feel like we had a lot of growing to do. Yeah. Um, and even now, so, you know, I think that I, I've, I've had to always balance my view of my own work and my hope for its level of uh, critical acclaim. Like, just manage those expectations and... and stay focused on the work and not necessarily like the result afterwards, you know? Sure. Because you're only going to be disappointed, I think. The time it, from the administration to Jealous is kind of like a long span for you. Yeah. You know, because everything else was like this year, this year, this. there's always something coming out. And then you kind of like have like a, a moment of kind of regrouping, it seems like. Yeah. You know, um, how soon after administration did you start thinking like okay let's let's redefine who I am and going in for you know doing that session with Nolan and Simon um you know doing like what was the process to go into this next phase process was that I went back and did uh Les Mis over in the West End uh and who were you in this time Marius uh, so I did that and I learned how to sing again. You're no longer Chip. Yeah. And exactly. It was a more mature thing as a whole, but I learned how to sing and sustain my adult voice, which was a really good lesson to learn because on the administration album, especially, you can hear it. I was singing through my voice change so much that I think I did like some just like too much growling and like work mechanisms to sing higher notes that were a bit unhealthy for the voice. Um, so I did that and like, again, just like relearned how to sing and it was great. And then I, uh, had my first like real adult relationship that was really, uh, important as well and incredibly, uh, creative relationship and it was with another artist and it was very inspiring to like sit and talk music and not feel like embarrassed or like it was like a, a I don't know, it was just really sort of. Were you in beautiful. London during all this? No, I was, was back here after that. And then I went on a, with this person on a songwriting retreat to uh, Bali and had like one of the best <laughs> experiences ever there. Uh, and so songwriting and like just creating started to become a passion again. And then my brothers and I started working together again. We went on like a couple tours. You could really feel it was like the last hoorah and like this shit was falling apart. I mean, it was just not Emotionally not or what do you mean? Everything. Um, yeah. Creatively, emotionally, we were trying to write new music, but we were clashing because I was like kind of, steamrolling a bit and was pretty adamant about producing it all as well. I was, Did you just, know that at the time? Um, no. Looking back, I can see that it was that. Right. Um, but, you know, it just also was just no longer authentic for us to be making music. It just didn't make sense anymore. And we all kind of wanted different things. And that blew up in our faces. But I had started, like, recording some stuff that I was sort of pushing to the side. The song called Santa Barbara, which was on my first solo record, um, and uh, another one. And I, I just was like, something's brewing. And at this point, this was years later, it was the sort of timelines all messed up. But 
Um, I, I just was also getting really into acting again, doing some stuff in that world. And, uh, the band split up and I led that conversation. It was a really, really tough couple of days of working through what that was going to be like. We had spent a lot of our own money because we were no longer with Hollywood and trying and just nothing was working that we were doing. Put out a single, it didn't work. Like it's a really tough moment for us as brothers and also as a band, obviously. Um, so we finished that and I'm in New York. At this point, hadn't seen David Massey in a couple of years. We'd like had lunch once, but that was about it. Um, from the time we left Hollywood, which was almost eight years earlier, or not Hollywood, uh, Columbia. And uh, he wrote me an email. He said, are you okay? I'm seeing the news. Would you like to meet for lunch? And I sat down with him at lunch and talking about, you know, like music. And I was sort of just so like jaded at this point. I was like so sad and just like disappointed with everything not working and feeling like, you know, creatively, I wanted to do something weird and like not care if it was successful or not as a mechanism to set myself up for failure, you know, and be okay with it. And he was like, because I said, you know, maybe I'll just do like a producer name, like a different name and just fucking put it out, you know? <laughs> He's like, but don't you want to like travel the world and write like hit songs and be like a big star? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. And he's like, okay. He's like, well, let's do this. And I was like, okay. And I played him Santa Barbara and Push. Yeah. Uh, which was a song I wrote, Chase, over there. And he was like, I'm all in. I'm ready to do this with you. I think we have a an idea of the direction. He's like, just get in there and like just start writing. Just like write, write, write. And I like second co-write that I did for the thing was with Simon and, and Nolan and we like started this one idea I always love when this happens you start the one idea you get like the verse and chorus and I'm kind of ADD and I'm like let's just like go like walk around for a minute and like see I don't know it's a good idea but it could be better so we like go outside and they asked me about like what happened last night it's like ah oh, man this, at this bar right and this guy I think it's like blatantly like hitting on my girlfriend and it was like really annoying and they're like, yeah, that's, I was like, you know, and I just talking about it and I sort of worked through it in the conversation. I was like, it's totally fine. I'm not like concerned. She's going to leave me. And then the songs just kind of wrote itself. We're like sitting there and it's like, Jealous was, was born out of this conversation. We went back in and finished it like in 10 minutes and basically just get it out. Um, and I remember thinking when it was done, that's it's pretty good. Yeah. But I wasn't like, Number one smash. Like, <laughs> right. I was like, yeah, it's good. It's cool. And I walked into my manager Phil's office and was like, check this out. We just did this. And he like stood up and he's like, you did it. I was like, did what? Right. Like, you wrote a hit. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't convinced till it was on the radio. And I was like, okay, maybe. But yeah, I didn't know. But this is one of those things where what makes it cool, you know, coming out of everything you had been through is that the lyrics in it, are of kind of like somebody who doesn't care about writing hit songs. It doesn't sound yeah. manufactured. The the lyrics in the middle of that chorus, it, just to start the chorus, are kind of bizarre. They're weird. Like they're really cool and they're super visual, which is really yeah. exciting. But you didn't start off turn, by yeah, saying I still like, to this day, what people are like, what are you saying? Turn, turn, chin turn my up. chin music up, yeah. which is like in baseball, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But no one really got that. 
Yeah, but I wasn't trying to write a hit is the, the moral of the story. Because right. um, I feel like you fail when you do that. But then the other great lesson in this time was in the same week that I wrote Jealous, I recorded my first outside song. Yeah. And I'd never done that before. And it was so, I was so uncomfortable. I was like, I felt a bit like embarrassed almost. Like, I can't do this myself. Like, people don't have faith in me. Like, I felt like it was my fault or something that I had to like record an outside song. And But that song did pretty well too. That I song assume. did okay, yeah. <laughs> but also like Chase and Evigan and I become very close friends uh, over the last couple of years. And like this friendship was born out of me being open enough to say like, okay, I can define a template of what works for me, but I also need to trust in these incredible creators around me. Like there's so many brilliant minds and you never know where that next hit's going to come from. So like be open to anything. And uh, then I was like, how many hits did I miss? Because I didn't record songs, sure. right? Like fuck. Uh, so yeah, I recorded Chains that week. And like recorded it in my own studio because I was kind of like embarrassed and then sent it back to him. And he was like, he was pumped. And then we met and like talked about it. Now it's so funny because like someone sends me a song, I'm like, please send yeah, all exactly. of the songs. <laughs> I was upstairs when they were writing Chains downstairs. Oh, really? Yeah. And we were upstairs. We wrote this song that ended up being a single for somebody on RCA. And uh, it wasn't it wasn't great. Um, and I... Uh, <laughs> I remember walking downstairs and there's those moments where you're in a room and you're like, like, so it wasn't a writing camp really, but you know, it was Amar and, and Evigan and, and Danny Parker were downstairs and I forget who I was with upstairs, but you come downstairs and you're like, this room's cool. This room's cool. Whatever. It's all fine. And you kind of, you, I don't know. There's a little competition that happens in that environment. You know, you want to write the best song of the day or like whatever it is. And you know, when you're in those environments where there are all these really good writers, there are just days where you walk downstairs like, fuck, yeah. I'm literally, <laughs> I'm less than, you know, 20 feet away from a hit. It's being written. And just because of the luck of the draw, I'm sure I would have ruined the song. But like, you know, just that thing of like you walk in and damn it, this song's so much better than yeah. what we're working on. You just have a kind of like have like an ego and you walk downstairs, yeah, play me what you're working on. No, I, we, really I good. have felt that numerous times. And also, it's the uncomfortable thing in like a camp setting when like you feel like you got the vibe. Right? Yeah. You're like, I fucking, I got one. I fucking got it. And then someone comes in and goes, Woo! Just got the single. And you're yeah. like, Sick. Because <laughs> then your great song is yeah. like not, not great anymore. Single. Yeah, it's not the yeah. single. Um, you know what's really cool? And I've, I've said this because we've now interviewed a lot of your co-writers. Um, But one thing that's really true about both Jealous and Chains is that uh, the industry uses those still as markers for artists. That's cool. Like behind your back, people (laughs) like are constantly saying like, we need something that's like, I mean, the Chains sort of drop-ish thing kind of thing became a thing that everyone tried to emulate. Yeah. For... Two years, it felt like, and jealous as like a as a as a first single, like oh, we need that kind of song, that like doesn't it's that it's something that you can't control at being the artist and the writer and the and the yeah. human around it, but people want it want these songs, so you are at the epicenter of something. I think cool. levels is really interesting for as a fan because. 
it didn't do as well as something like Close or Chains. Yeah. But I love that song. It's probably one of my most important live songs. Why didn't that work? I don't understand. This is, I think this is something you can attribute to the moment that streaming became really important. Like that t- time, which I guess was 2015, mm-hmm. it's like all of a sudden streaming was, was the thing, right? And it was like, just that balance it was a, it was it was just a crazy moment and so i think it you know it was close to top 10 at radio maybe i like i don't know but it never like fully broke open and it never really fully broke open at streaming until now like it's picking up on streaming years later yeah in the same way that close has outstreamed all the other songs and it's like that, but that was it i mean that was a top 10 yeah that was that was exciting to watch that one go because also another great example of like I walked into a camp room where like they're like they're, you know I'll like jump around to different rooms and I was in with Sean and uh, Matt Men and Robin in the other room but I was Sean and the Wolf Cousins guys and stuff yeah. and uh, I walk into the room it's Julia and Justin and Matt Men and Robin and they've got the chorus written and like some scatting on the verse. Mm-hmm. And it's Julia singing it, so it obviously sounds amazing. Yeah. And I was like, I would feel rude to like jump in now because you guys are like locked into something and it's like, just just go. Like, this is great. I love it. I'll record it whenever it's done if you'll let me, but like, just go. And so they wrote Close, which is like a, another great, you know, record and a time when it's important to just be like, as creative as I can be, I also want to be able to be like, there's amazing people around me. That's why they're they're here, you know. But this is that that personality is why, and I I hope other artists are listening to this because that's why the writing community embraces you and wants to work with you. Is that they know that their ideas will be heard one way or the other, and that it's about the collaboration. And if it means that you add to it, don't add to it, or whatever the situation is, yeah. you're not trying to force something that isn't there, and you're also trying to accept things that like the opportunity for you know an artist to have a hit song to record is super rare it's that same yeah. thing the whole like crux of this podcast of there's you know uh millions of singers thousands of artists and only 40 songs per genre at a time yeah and and you know when those hit songs show up to be like well i'm not going to record that is really probably not a smart move because yeah. it can help launch how you then create the next nine songs as a writer, or it can like you know reestablish. I I'd, I'd never want to be the like the he passed story on that one, right? Like the right. oh yeah, can you believe that so and so passed on that record? Yeah. Like I'll just always cut a vocal and be like, if it's not right at the end of the day, I'll know once my voice is on it. But I don't want to be like the after photo. Or like the before photo, I guess it would be. <laughs> and Has that happened? Where I, yeah, a hit song came across, you're like, I don't, that's not me. Uh, there, no, yes, yes. There was a time when there was a song that became a really big hit that I was sent, and I just said confidently, I don't think this is right for me. The direction that I want to take uh, doesn't feel right. And even when it became a hit, I wasn't there going, ah, oh, I should have. I was, I was still sure that I made the right choice, which I'm. Like, that's. That's the best example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there have been records that I wanted that I didn't get, and they went to other people. And one time in particular, where 
it was like taken from me. And I was not happy about it. But the song was not a hit. So, so ha 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 ha. So ha ha all of you. Look what you get. Um, okay, a few more things. You have a Golden Globe nomination. You I, know, I know that yeah. you guys just just lost on it. But we did lose for losers. <laughs> you have a nomination. That's pretty cool. That seems yeah. like a kind of a bucket list situation. That was a big moment. I was very very happy about that and to get to share that with with justin and nick was just amazing Justin yeah. transfer nick monson um and that song was another one too where it was like i'd been working they, they gave me the description of what they needed for the movie ferdinand and like the tone emotionally and also the tempo and everything else and i was like all right this is kind of foreign i did this back in the day when my brothers and i had a tv show i would write songs for the tv show with other co-writers my brothers were both busy with other things in not wanting to be <laughs> we shot all day right we shot 12 hours a day and then i would go to the studio for another four or five hours to write and they were like we're no like just take the lead i'll do it. so my you know it was a lot and i was also studying to uh, for the chess B, which is like the california proficiency test so i was to be done with high school so it was like a lot of work at this moment at 16 but anyway they said we need this kind of song this kind of emotion and I, I tried like four times to write the song and I just could not get it right. I was like, we get like the verse and the chorus and I was like, guys, let's go to something else. This isn't, this isn't right. It's not whatever. And I walk in with Justin. I give him the basic pitch of the thing, show him some visuals for the movie. And we just started talking about, you know, what it feels to be accepted, what it feels to be loved. And for both of us, that's home, you know. And so we went on the live room with the acoustic guitar, dad got tuning, started writing the song. And then uh, Nick produced up the track we recorded it all in a day and they loved it at the studio so it was great it's awesome um how do you balance all the acting stuff happening now i mean you have now been in um you know massive tv shows and movies yeah um it's a crazy moment i'm not gonna lie i think that do you feel the pull towards acting over music or is it is that never going to be the case being that I feel the the pull towards just being creative, to be honest, right now. Like, I'm in a moment where I don't have the next acting project lined up, per se. Um, but I've got you a general sense. You just finished something, right? Didn't you just finish Yeah, I finished something? a movie at the end of last year yeah. uh, called Chaos Walking, which is a, a book series that adapted into a, a film series, I think. Um, and then Jumanji. I think the success of Jumanji was a humongous surprise to me. I mean, I... I I saw the movie and thought it was great. Uh, I expected maybe like three, four hundred million worldwide, but to see that we just crossed nine hundred is insane. It's so crazy. Um, and and people really love the movie. Yeah. So that I think it's the first time I've been a part of something where there's so much passion and love for it. Like Kingdom, this TV show I did was on a smaller scale, just because the audience was limited and the exposure of the show was limited. But people really loved it. But it was it was a smaller group. This feels like a bit more of like a across the board people really liked something that we made and that feels really good uh but as i mentioned before i'm writing a lot so i'm i'm on like scripts and, and a play and everything else so I'm, i feel kind of like i'm in a really good moment of feeling a bit settled and content uh with kind of whatever happens um in the past i've felt like more pressure to find the next acting project and then what's the next single and right now i'm, I'm kind of comfortable but not in a bad way not stagnant yeah. just comfortable good um I'm going to list five people, and you're just going to say the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Okay. 
Phil McIntyre. The best. That's your manager, by the way. My manager, Phil yeah, McIntyre, is the best in the whole that. business. American Idol producer as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Good for him. Demi Lovato. Uh, also the best. No, but um, Demi Lovato. Fearless. I think that's the, the best word I can, I can think of. Fearless. Are you liking having a record label with her? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really great thing to have control, but also collaborate with Island and the team there because we trust them. Um, and it, it's been great for both of us. Joe Jonas. Joe Jonas. Uh, he's, a, he's free. He's just a free spirit, and, and I envy that in him. I mean, we're, we're best friends, and, and we live together as close as you can get, basically, and uh, I admire and kind of envy his ability to sort of transcend above things and just be so free and uh, carry himself with so much joy and, and love for everyone around him, and uh, it's a beautiful thing. Um, you, you gotta like as as somebody in the industry to see the success that you guys have had independently yep. of each other is just so rad. It's pretty cool. It's like it's it's exactly it's so storybook. It's kind of like yeah. an offensive storybook. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> come on, like you you if you sent that in in a script, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I mean, never one of them one of them doesn't do it. You know, yeah. not like they both end up with number one songs. That's just not how that is supposed <laughs> to work out. Um, Kevin Jonas. Kevin Jonas. He's uh, kind, very kind, and, and so th- just thoughtful. I mean, it's just amazing to see what fatherhood does to a person. I think, and he's got two beautiful girls and a loving wife, and he's he's uh, just a, a really thoughtful and kind person, and I love him to death. Admire him a lot. And David Massey. David Massey. I don't know, kind of a guiding light. That's the best way to describe it, I think. You know, from the time I was 11 years old in his office, asked me to sing CB Wonder to, to now. Uh, I'm able to get more real with him on a personal level in a short amount of time than anybody else I know, really. And um, I think what's beautiful about the head of a label like that is that he sure he cares about the work and, and all that, but he, he really cares about his artist's state of mind first and that they're healthy and happy. And uh, he's willing to see their vision through in a way that I don't think a lot of head of labels would do. Right. I just want to let you talk a little bit about your foundation and and what you've been doing over, because I I feel like that's probably the most important thing that you do. No offense to the music and acting and all the success. Like you actually change humans' lives. And I think it's important that people know how they can help you achieve those goals. Yeah, so I mentioned briefly before, but I'm, I'm a type 1 diabetic. Uh, I was diagnosed at 13. Um, and about a year after I learned how to manage the disease, I decided that it was time that I speak up about it and let people know you know, how they can get involved to help raise awareness, but also money for research. Um, so I kind of raised my hand and said, I'm a diabetic and, and want to be open about this and help people that are living with this disease and bring some encouragement, some light. And a couple of years ago, I teamed up with uh, a few other co-founders and started Beyond Type 1, which is an amazing organization that kind of enriches people's lives with diabetes and, and talks about the management of disease in a really personal way that doesn't feel like clinical. You know, it, it's sort of uh, more human. And then in addition to that, we uh, offer a lot of grants to another, other organizations, and um, both in the management side of things, but also in the eye towards a cure. So beyondtype1.com has all the information. You can check that out. Also, the Instagram is great. and um, It's been fun and, and really encouraging to be able to be open about it 
and know that uh, I'm not alone myself. Do, is there any information about uh, when you say like looking for a cure? Is there any information as far as like who's who's been pushing that you know that research and who's like is it is there hope for that? I think there's there's hope. I mean, I still think it's a little ways away. I think yeah. that, you know, there's a lot of things that would have to happen, uh, not just the research aspect and and you know the, the science of it all, but but the money. I mean, I think it would be very expensive, and I think that administering a cure also comes with uh, you know shutting down what is a huge business as well as far as the management of a disease right now. Interesting. So I'm kind of curious what that would all look like and. I, I hope that there's really good people in the mix that will prioritize the cure for people living with the disease because it is not uh, it's not fun. Yeah, and and it makes life really challenging. And if it's not managed the right way, it's life threatening. You know. Sure. So uh, I am hopeful, but I'm also a bit of a realist about it. And and I think you know that balancing the optimism with with the reality is is key. Yeah. What's advice you'd give to a young songwriter? Advice I'd give is take really big swings. Uh, I like this idea that every time you get up to the plate, you just swing hard, you know, and, and uh, a good batting average is like 300, right? And so if out of those 10 swings, there's two or three that are awesome or like a good next step. That's a good ratio. Uh, and I think I probably, um, I'm more towards like the 175 batting average. But um, I live a really happy life because I'm, I'm getting up to the plate and just trying to take big swings every time. Well, thank you for doing this podcast. Thank you for having me. This is enjoyable. You know, I was, I've said it along the way, but the fact that you are, you're such a staple in the, the songwriting community says more about how you treat songwriters than anything else because you know there are a lot of successful artists that we can name that the writing community despises yeah i'm sure you know <laughs> and they don't want to go i know who a few of those are yeah i'm sure <laughs> and and it's and it's like it, it's just always enjoyable nobody walks away from hanging out with you and it's like man that was a really that was a shitty day. Do you know what I mean? And that, <laughs> that's encouraging. Like, and that's all. But that's all you want is to have a good time and to be around somebody who has your success. But it always feels like, you know, it always feels like home. It always feels really relaxing. It's an, it's a good day, and everybody walks away fulfilled that that was their experience. I mean, we walked in and you were just you had just gone basically on vacation with Joe here. Yeah. You know, on this writing camp with Thomas Rhett and Sean and you know, like it's just like trip. the greatest writers in the world for a weekend at 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 a at a ranch and it's just like you're you're just you've always been one of the guys or you know, one of the people in the in the room and everyone just enjoys being around you. So, thank you for It's cool to hear. Thanks. For being part of it. You're the man. This was fun. Cool. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist. Or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us 
You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On next episode, we sit down with Dave Hodges. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 